Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Sunday's shooting at a gathering of Taiwanese American Presbyterians in Orange County has shaken that community across Southern California. As KPCC's Josie Wong reports, it's upsetting the older generation the most. The Taiwan Center Foundation in Rosemead is where Taiwanese Americans come to celebrate their culture. They dance here, sing karaoke, but now 72-year-old Shui Meitun says she's afraid of who might walk through the doors. Law enforcement officials say suspected gunman David Zhou may have been motivated by political tensions between China and Taiwan, which the mainland claims as its own. The 68-year-old Zhou is himself from Taiwan, but investigators say evidence they collected indicates he identifies with China. Older Taiwanese immigrants grew up under martial law imposed by the Kuomintang, led by Chinese who arrived on the island after World War II. Paul Jun of the Taiwan Center said many of the community's elders immigrated to the U.S. in the 1960s and 70s to flee authoritarian rule. These are the folks who raised the most voice against those type of injustice, that one-party system and the KMT. Now these elders wonder if they've really escaped what they left behind. For the California Report, I'm Josie Huang in Rosemead. The man charged in Sunday's church shooting in Laguna Woods sent a seven-volume diary to the Los Angeles office of the World Journal, a Chinese-language newspaper. The pages were titled Diary of an Angel Destroying Independence, an apparent reference to Taiwan's self-government. The Chinese Communist Party is increasingly pressuring Taiwan to reunify with China. An attorney for the newspaper says he doesn't believe any employees read through the contents of the diary before sending it to local law enforcement. The Orange County Sheriff's Department says it's aware of the journals, but couldn't confirm whether the department or the FBI has received them. Immigrant advocates are pleased with Governor Gavin Newsom's proposal that would make California the first state in the nation to extend safety net health coverage to all residents, regardless of immigration status. But as KQED's immigration editor Taiki Hendricks reports, with a $97 billion surplus projected in the governor's May budget revision, the advocates say it's time for state leaders to go even further. In recent years, California expanded Medi-Cal to undocumented children and then to the elderly. Newsom's plan would cover the last remaining group, roughly 700,000 undocumented adults aged 26 to 49. That's crucial, says Eduardo Garcia, a policy analyst at the Latino Community Foundation, because data shows working-age Latino immigrants were 11 times more likely to die of COVID than other Californians. So many of these workers were frontline workers during the peak of the pandemic. And so if we're going to 
strive to have an equitable health and economic recovery, we need to ensure that these workers are being included in the safety net. But the governor's Medi-Cal expansion wouldn't take effect until 2024. Garcia wants it sooner. He backs a plan by Senate Democrats to spend an extra billion dollars to expand coverage by next June. And advocates are working with the legislature's Latino caucus to budget more of the surplus for low-wage Californians, including the state's two million undocumented residents. They hope to expand food stamps and the state's earned income tax credit and pilot a program of unemployment insurance for undocumented workers. Here's Garcia. Undocumented Californians contribute approximately $3.1 billion in state and local taxes, but are often excluded from California safety net. But not everyone is on board. Republican consultant Mike Madrid agrees the pandemic's public health crisis showed the value of ensuring health care for all, but he says the state should return a lot of that excess revenue in the form of rebates. California, unfortunately, I think is becoming a state with our tax system that is overly reliant on very high-income earners and is extraordinarily generous to very low-income earners. The state's legislative analyst warns the governor's budget plan already exceeds a voter-mandated spending limit. Expanding the social safety net could make it worse, says Gabriel Pettick, the legislative analyst. The legislature wanted to increase spending on some social services. Our recommendation would be for them to consider reducing other types of services. It is a difficult set of choices for the legislature. Lawmakers have until June 15th to pass a balanced budget. For the California Report, I'm Tyke Hendricks. This week, more than 40 so-called documented dreamers are in Washington, D.C. They're lobbying lawmakers to pass legislation that would protect young people who've aged out of their families' immigration applications. KQED's Rachel Myro has more. Immigrants who've applied for green cards can wait for decades. And if their children turn 21 before those green cards come through, they're kicked off their family's application. Senator Alex Padilla co-authored a bipartisan bill designed to address this problem even as comprehensive immigration reform sits on ice. We will not give up because documented dreamers and millions of other immigrants deserve better. Padilla says he's mindful that getting the Senate to pass anything will become increasingly difficult ahead of the election in November. For the California Report, I'm Rachel Myro. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. 
to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening and thank you for your support. Let's turn to Palm Springs, where the city has given final approval for a pilot program that would provide monthly payments to transgender and non-binary residents. The city council voted four to one to approve the basic income program. Mayor Lisa Middleton, who's transgender, cast the lone no vote. I cannot support a basic income program. I don't believe it's a municipal responsibility to act in this area. And I don't believe the outlines of the programs are such that they will win broad public approval and adoption. And Mayor Middleton has expressed concerns about just the effectiveness of basic income programs. Two local organizations will be given $200,000 to launch the pilot program in the coming year. The monthly payments will likely range from $600 to $900 a month. In response to national shortages of baby formula, President Biden has invoked the Defense Production Act to speed production and has authorized the Defense Department to use commercial planes to import formula from overseas that meet U.S. standards. And as we hear from KPCC's Jackie Fortier, the baby formula shortage is also prompting warnings from California health officials. Parents struggling to find baby formula in stores are warned not to water it down or use homemade formula. Babies have specific dietary needs that substitutes such as powdered cow's milk can't meet and it's not safe. The shortage began in February when one of the largest formula plants in the country shut down its factory after several babies became ill after drinking formula. Two babies died of bacterial infections. The Michigan plant will reopen after reaching an agreement with the federal government. In the meantime, you may soon see foreign formula brands on the shelves. The FDA eased some restrictions on which companies can sell baby formula in the U.S. For the California Report, I'm Jackie Fortier in Los Angeles. California has some of the most stringent privacy laws in the country, including protecting the personal data of immigrants. But a two-year investigation by the Georgetown Law Center on Privacy and Technology has found that immigration and customs enforcement has used a range of surveillance tactics to circumvent state privacy laws, including California's. ICE has spent nearly $3 billion since 2008 on surveillance and data collection, often using third-party parties to access the data of millions of people and target people for deportation. I spoke earlier with Dan Pateko, one of the researchers on the project. What kind of data exactly has been amassed by ICE? Our report is one of the very few that's looking to quantify ICE gathering of data and quantify the extent to which ICE has surveilled the entire American people. And so what we found is that ICE is gathering data from public utilities, those kinds of records. They're gathering data from DMVs, and they're gathering data from private data brokers. All of these pieces of data work in concert together for ICE to be able to identify and target individuals for deportation. And how has it done this? And for how long has it been doing this? ICE has been, over the past 12 years purchasing data and making contracts with private companies to gather your personal information. They've done this by creating contracts with data brokers like LexisNexis and Thomson Reuters. 
They've done this by going directly to the DMVs and requesting that the DMVs process their requests for information about you. They've done this all without congressional oversight or state oversight. And we found in our report that many of these examples of ICE gathering data about individuals across the U.S. have gone unremarked by representatives in states and cities. In terms of the research you and your colleagues have done, how does this affect a state like California, which already has some pretty serious data privacy laws in place? So looking at the nationwide trend, what we've seen is that every time a state passes a privacy protection law, ICE finds a loophole. And that happened in California as well. So looking in late 2020, Governor Gavin Newsom passes a bill restricting utility usage information from going to federal immigration enforcement absent a warrant. The law says, go get a warrant, go have lawful process if you want access to Californians' utility customer information, right? That law also went an extra step and making sure that the data doesn't get sold to a data broker. And at the time, this was praised as a tremendous victory for the privacy of Californians. What ended up happening was that ICE found a loophole around this law. Our findings show that Equifax and NCTUE credit brokers created a backdoor for ICE, essentially. What happened was that the law limits the selling of customer data, but it's ineffective, near useless, if a utility company is sharing that information for free, like it does when it conducts a credit check. So in this case, what we found was that California utility companies were disseminating customer information to these credit agencies, NCTUE, and that NCTUE was then entitled to resell Californians' customer information to third parties, including ICE. And so as of last year, we, we found that about one in two Californians' utility customer data was still accessible by ICE through Equifax, through NCTUE, despite Governor Newsom's law, despite the privacy protections that they, they we tried to put in place. All right, that is Dan Bateko with the Georgetown Center on Privacy and Technology. Dan, thanks so much for joining us on the California Report. Thanks so much for having me. In a statement to the California Report, ICE says it uses various kinds of technology to investigate violations of the law while also trying to respect civil liberties and privacy interests. The agency says its enforcement focus is on people who may pose a threat to national security, public safety, and border security. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford HealthCare. Alerting listeners to the critical blood shortage in the area, now is the time to donate blood and make a difference. StanfordBloodCenter.org Hint. Fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories, in stores or delivered from DrinkHint.com. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. And that is the California Report for Thursday, May 19th. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening and have a great morning. Hi, 
I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures. Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast. And I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! <laughs> 